Hi, I'm John Sumser, and welcome to this episode of The Work. My co-host, Gene Achille, and I spend time each week with you talking about the deep ideas in HR tech and culture at large. Today, we're going to be spending time with Myra Norton, and I found a, a reference to Myra Norton that will solve all of the intro problems. It says, Myra Norton is the mathematician with a superb sense of social, versatile and strategic, energetic, thoughtful, driven, and compassionate, things that don't always go together in one mathematician. Um, what I know about Myra is from working with her over a number of years now, Myra among other things, ran student affairs at Temple University, taught math at Naval Academy, has been an economics professor in a number of places, worked as an analyst in the defense industry, and for the last while has been in the leadership of a company called Arena Analytics in Baltimore. And it's, it's, it's a wonderful privilege to have you on this thing tonight, Myra. Would you fill in the blanks in what I missed in your illustrious career? Thank you. Uh, it's good to be here. I think you pretty well captured it. I'm, I'm a recovering academic. That's how I describe myself. So started my career, uh, went to Temple University uh, on a future faculty fellowship and it, it thought that would be my path. Uh, did my graduate work there in math and statistics and um, taught both those at Temple and other places, as you mentioned, and then ended up eventually in uh, administration um, in the College of Science and Technology, and then woke up one day and said, I, I want to figure out how to apply all this, all the, the, the things I've learned, <laughs> uh, the science, the math, the statistics, I want to I go apply this in, uh, in the real world. Um, and not that academia isn't the real world, but uh, it's different. And so, um, so that's basically what led me into a number of things, Northrop Grumman being one of them, and then to startups. So uh, I've run two startups, Arena is my second, and both really focus on taking the, the incredibly powerful tools of uh, math, tech, data, and applying them to the most what I would, I would describe as the most subjective of human endeavors. Um, and to me, that's what I'm passionate about is the marriage of those two things. So before we drill down into that, you're a, you're, you're a torchbearer for women in STEM, right? You are, you are a walking, talking statistics major who's a woman. That, you know, that's not a common package. And you spend some time encouraging others along the path you found. Talk a little bit about that. Yes, you know, I, I was not supposed to be doing what I'm doing now and certainly not studying math and statistics. My, my father was a theologian. My mother is a historian. They don't really know where I came from. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and But I, at a very young age, found that I was good at math. And I was fortunate that I, um, you know, had parents and folks around me that encouraged me to keep that up. And, and so I did. And it wasn't really until I uh, got to college and then later graduate school where I started to realize that I was often the only woman um, in, in the classroom, certainly in the um, professoriate. Uh, and, you know, those things have changed somewhat now, but not, not nearly as much as they should. 
And so when I started really becoming passionate about encouraging other women to not even just pursue careers in, uh, in math and statistics and the sciences, because I think you should pursue the careers that are fulfilling for you, but to not be afraid of those disciplines and to not um, buy into the narrative that somehow women are not as capable in those fields as men. Um, I, I became passionate about that in, when I was doing my graduate work and I um, was seeing, I was teaching. I, I was teaching classes of you know 150 students and I was watching how the young women in, in my classes were just resigned to, you know, I'm just not good at math. Um, and I said, we got to do something about this because that's, that's just not true. There, there's nothing that says that, that women are not as capable uh, and not able to, to master these fields um, as men. And so um, I worked with young women in the classroom. And then as I started, as my career uh, took a different direction and I was no longer teaching, but actually leading teams, I started doing this work in the community. So serving as a mentor for young women at all ages, starting um, in middle school up, middle school is sort of the age where we find that young girls start to opt out and, and make decisions about what they can and can't do uh, in these fields. And so uh, all the way up through young professionals who are, who are trying to figure out um, where they want to go. I think that that mentorship is really important. I, I didn't have that when I was um, coming up. Um, I didn't have a lot of that. And so I want to give that as much as possible to uh, the young women that I am fortunate enough to, to come in contact with. So that's a, that's a backbone, I think. You're currently running Arena Analytics, and Arena Analytics is a company that takes math and tries to solve social problems with math. Um, and how's that, how's that going? I mean, it, it's, there's a lot of mumbo jumbo in the air about using math to solve problems these days. And, um, arena is breaking some ground. That's interesting. Let's tell us a little bit about your work there. Yeah. Well, I kind of have to start at 50,000 feet if I'm going to take you through, uh, what we're doing there, because, what we're doing there is is all all rests on a fundamental belief that I have and that the team at Arena has that talent is equally distributed across society, but opportunity isn't. And as a result of that, large swaths of the population are not afforded opportunity in equitable ways, um, are not finding employment in areas where they can actually thrive and be successful. And, and there are also large swaths of the population who are in roles who have been afforded opportunity, but they're in roles where they're not thriving, where, where this isn't really the, the best fit for them. And the reason that I believe that's so important is, um, you know, if you think about society, one of the core tenets of, of a, a peaceful society is hope. The, the, the belief that I, as an individual, can change my circumstances. And 
at the base of that is economic mobility. At first, just economic survival. If you think about sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, can I put food on the table? Can I support my family? Um, and then as you move up that hierarchy, am I doing, am I spending my life in a way that is fulfilling, in a way that allows me to bring my gifts and talents to bear that enables me to, um, uh, to thrive? And so the heart of that is what I spend my, my life doing. That is work. That is work. And so solving this, this, this uh, inequity that exists in the labor market, to me, is the, the fundamental step um, to enabling a more peaceful and productive society. And so at ARENA, the way we're tackling that problem is to say, all right, why do those inequities exist? Well, they, they exist because there is informational asymmetry in the labor market. So, and by that, I mean, organizations are often not great at identifying talent. You know, organizations and, and humans inside of organizations, we've developed these sort of cognitive shortcuts that say, I'm looking for these things in a resume, or this is the type of person or the profile of person that will be successful in this job. And as a result of that, I'm missing out on a lot of talented individuals that don't fit this kind of cognitive shortcut that I've developed, right? And on the other side uh, of the informational asymmetry problem is I, as a job seeker, don't often know what opportunities are out there for me or what, what kinds of jobs I would be successful at. I think about my, myself, I, if you had asked me when I was growing up if I would be the CEO of a company, I would have laughed in your face. I didn't see that in my in the world around me. That's not that wasn't that role model that 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 um, not even role model. Just just witnessing like oh this is a thing that you know a person like me does. Um, I, I that wasn't there. So so I kind of got to this place in a, on a very circuitous route. So it's that informational asymmetry problem. I believe we can solve most effectively and at scale through the application of technology, math, data to enable uh, a better matching between individuals and roles where they will thrive. I think I think it's pretty interesting that that this informational asymmetry. That's a that's a that's a lot of language for. I know. Sorry. Um, <laughs> Or I can't imagine what I haven't seen, yes. um, uh, and that that part of the mission at Arena is to make visible things that are invisible to people. So that so that if I grow up in a neighborhood where there's nobody working ground level in the healthcare system, I can't imagine doing so, and um, I would never pursue something so so the opportunity may be right there but i can't see it because i don't have the experience necessary to see it and the the arena uh, model is to make that stuff visible um and, and it's a, an astonishing approach you do that with um, some pretty advanced technology um, talk about that a little bit yeah well, um, we're using the tools of artificial intelligence, although, uh, John, as you know, we've had many conversations about this. I'm always hesitant to, to, 
say we're an AI tool only because artificial intelligence is a massive field and it's one of those uh, it's one of those terms that is being used in all kinds of places and it means different things in different places. So I'm going to try to talk about it explicitly to be really clear about the tools of AI that we're using, right? Um, we're using machine learning techniques uh, that enable us to process vast amounts of data about job seekers, about employees, about jobs themselves, about the environment in which uh, an, an individual works. So the department, the facility, the organization itself, the community, the geography in which a particular job sits, um, and, and outcome data about you know, what, what is happening when, some, when someone moves into a job, um, are they being promoted? Are they moving laterally? Are they not? Are they opting out of that job? Are they being forced out of that job? You know, what what are the outcomes that that are happening when individuals move into uh, a job and, and beyond? And so machine learning allows us to process that data and generate algorithms that can predict essentially a match, an, an individual to a specific job. And it's not a one to one relationship. Okay, there's not people, you know, often ask me uh, a, a series of questions. One is, you know, so is there a perfect job for an individual? No, there, there might be several, you know, uh, jobs where an individual will, will thrive. Um, so uh, the matching process is about highlighting where that, what the, where those connections are. You know, what are the opportunities where an individual is likely to thrive? Um, and also for a given job, there's not just one person that can do that job well, right? So it's it's about really being explicit in terms of where, where those matches exist. Um, and then the other thing that I get asked a lot is, um, so we do a lot of work in the healthcare space. So someone will say, so what what is, what is the profile of a good nurse? And uh, what I would tell you is there's no such thing as a good you know, just a blanket good nurse. There is, uh, there's this notion of the ind an individual who is going to thrive in in this job, this nursing role, on this unit, serving these patients um, inside this organization. Right? That it's it's much more um, precise. It's not generic. And and I think, you know, so so at Arena. The, the technologies that we're applying really enable that level of precision hiring. Um, and, and, you know, this level of um, uh, data science, data processing, um, algorithmic development simply wasn't possible even just 20 years ago. It's been the, the you know, continuous uh, sort of exponential growth of computing power that's enabled us to do some incredibly powerful things with math and data and tech. I, I, I'm fascinated by what you're what you're talking about and and coming up with a lot of questions. So please indulge me with some of <laughs> some of these questions. Um, how is this different than assessment testing? Why can't I just use assessment testing to determine fit? It's a great question. I think there are a, and, and I often talk about um, arena and, and what we're doing is, is being built on the shoulders of the assessment industry. So 
Um, we often use this analogy when we think about the evolution of hiring, we sort of compare it to the evolution of driving directions, right? So if you think way back when you had the Rand McNally fold up map that sat right. in your car, right? <laughs> and you had to fold, unfold that thing when you wanted to go somewhere and you could never get it folded back, right? You know, uh, that, was, that was what we had to get from A to B. And I sort of compare that to the resume, the traditional, you know, resume that folks used for years and years before the birth of behavioral assessments, what you're talking about, mm -hmm. which I would sort of compare to uh, uh, MapQuest, right? Remember MapQuest? Sure. When, okay, now we can get a different lens on, on how to do this. And now, how do we all get from point A to point B? Waze, Google Maps, Yeah. right? Uh, so the, the difference is Assessments are typically developed uh, by first specifying the set of characteristics or traits that um, an organization or the, the, the you know, whoever's developing the assessment believes are critical for a specific job. So that first step right there can introduce a, a level of bias. So how are we determining what those, what, what are the personality traits and then how are we measuring them and is the measurement of those traits um, uh, disproportionately, is, is it capturing those traits uh, in the right way for varying uh, demographic groups, mm -hmm. right? And people that come from different backgrounds and have different sets of experiences. Uh, so then uh, for, from there, behavioral assessment, most assessments then sort of calibrate the response. So develop, they develop a set of questions that are designed to measure these traits. And they're calibrating the responses to those questions typically against uh, the existing employee base inside of an organization. So they're saying, we're going to benchmark the responses to these questions uh, against the top, whatever, top 25% of employees, top 50% of employees. Well, how do you define top 25% or top 50%? The typical way of doing that is, is either asking um, managers to rank, to, to, to say who are their top mm -hmm. performers. So that's another place where we are introducing bias, you know, un unintentionally, but um, I'll just give you a quick example. We did a study at Arena years ago, um, which is part of what led to us not using uh, manager rankings, where we had a set of hiring managers force rank their employees on June 1st. So in quartiles, you're based on their performance, top quartile, second, third, fourth. We had them rank the same set of employees on July 15th, 45 days later. There were people that were in quartile one on June 1st that were in quartile three on July 15th. There were people in quartile four on June 1st who were in quartile two on July 15th. And there's been all kinds of research on this, this issue, you know, it's recency effect. It's we're, we're human beings. Mm -hmm. It's, it's not that anyone's, mm -hmm. you know, doing something intentional, intentionally right. bad here. But the consequences of that are are, are uh, negative, and so what what we're doing is focusing on the outcomes that an individual is expected to achieve in a particular role, regardless of what their personality profile is or um, you know what their background is. Uh, what 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 are the outcomes? You know, how likely is an individual to be retained in this job? How likely is an individual to uh, achieve a certain set of metrics um, rather than 
how likely is the individual to look like people who are being identified as top performers today? Does that does that make sense? It does. So so clearly we've talked a lot about diversity and and bias, um, two extremely important topics. I want to just take us up a few levels, though, because we're talking um, a lot about the individual's career journey. How do we contextualize fit in the context of company culture? So, so help me understand that. And I'm sure you covered it, but I'm I'm not going to pretend to understand everything you're saying. So, for the benefit of me and our listeners, (laughs) help me understand that relationship. No, I think that's a great question. I think the question you're asking is how much of, uh, for Arena making these predictions, how much of that depends on the individuals, the, the you know data we get about an individual versus, well, the, the, the manager or the, comp- the nature of, you know, the culture of the company itself. Mm-hmm. Am I getting Yes, that? that's correct. That yes. Yeah. yeah. So the, the data that we're capturing is designed to, um, to, cap, to, to gather data about all of those pieces, right? And it, it's actually incredibly important because matching an individual to a role is as much about the specific job, the department they're going to sit, you know, the team they're going to be on, the uh, facility they're going to sit in, the uh, organization, the local, you know, the, the geography and the, the, the folks that this, this company serves. It's as much about those things as it is about the individual, right? That that match, you have to take into account both of those components. And so as we can, and we're continuously expanding the types of data that we're capturing and incorporating in our platform, we're focused just as much on data about an individual organization, sort of, and, and, and the way we do that is look at um, uh, data about the hierarchy of the organization, about how it's structured, about at down to the very individual department and manager level, um, what has been transpiring and then what is transpiring going forward in terms of who is being successful, who is not, um, you know, who, what uh, what are, the, the way our models work is they're ascertaining what are the unique predictors of a good match between this person and this environment. Um, does that help? It does. It does. Um, and I'm assuming you're you're relying on external data sources as well, whether it's you know BLS data or yes. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for painting a very comprehensive picture for us. I see John is chomping at the bit to ask more questions, and I know we we probably only have a few more minutes with you, so I'm going to turn the floor back over to John. Thanks, Steve. Um, so I'm going to ask you to simplify something complicated. Um, in in any system like you've described, it's inevitable that bias creeps back in. And you have, I, I've never heard of anybody else in our industry doing what you guys are doing using um, adversarial networks to solve the creeping bias problem. Can you make adversarial networks that solve the creeping bias problem simple enough for to understand? I'm going to try. How about that? So uh, the way adversarial networks operate, we're basically applying, we're we're using machine learning to attack uh, potential bias in machine learning, right? So what we do is we build two models. 
One is designed to make the best prediction possible about the outcome, you know, the best prediction in terms of match between an individual and a role. The other model is designed to, to it's a discriminator and it is designed to ferret out for every observation, every single person who are, is this a male? Is it female? Is this, uh, uh, what is their ethnicity? What is their uh, background? What, you know, how many years of experience do they have? So they're tr the, the discriminator is seeking to interrogate basically the, the predictor to say, can I, can I determine, can I pull out any latent information about demographic data? Because of course we include no demographic data in the models themselves and the predictors themselves. But the issue is that's not enough, right? The reason you need this discriminator is you can pull all the demographic data out of a model and you can still have bias. You can have bias from historical hiring bias where uh, you know, an organization has historically hired from one or preferred one particular demographic group over another. You have the combination of data that can lead to latent correlations, which are not apparent through normal kind of in, in, uh, algorithmic interrogation. And so this discriminator is designed to find that. I think of it like a, like a you know, private eye investigator. They're going to find where is the bias, right? Where is the, the information? that that tells me really what you know who this person is um, and then we pit those two models against each other and what ends up is this knitted together model that basically gives us the strongest prediction we can have strongest prediction we can have subject to the constraint that no demographic data is leaked that that discriminator cannot discern whether this individual person observation is, you know, cannot discern gender, cannot discern uh, background, cannot discern race, et cetera. Um, and that, that's how we are able to remove that historical hiring bias, the latent bias that exists in, in the combination of, of data elements. How'd I do? Does that make it simpler? <laughs> I don't know, Jean. I, I think it's fascinating. I, I think we could talk about this for hours, and I'm really excited that Myra's sharing this level of detail because I, I think our listeners are going to get a great deal out of this episode. So thank you for that. Um, I know I've just learned something new that uh, certainly makes sense to me, but I wasn't aware of previously. Good. Awesome. So I think I, there's so much more that we could talk about. You know, you know the the um, adversarial network is a kind of automation of ethics that I don't think people are really thinking very hard about yet. And um, there's a whole additional conversation that we should have sometime in the future where you come back and we'll talk about how ethics works at the uh, arena because you're really pioneering um, a model for doing ethics in HR technology that that is not obvious, but very effective. I love it. Excellent. Love Excellent. Myra, thank you so much for joining us today. Would you please tell our listeners how they can reach you? Sure. Email Myra, M-Y-R-A, at arena.io. And uh, you're welcome to visit our website uh, at arena.io. Excellent. John, thank you for another great episode. Myra, thank you so much for being our guest. We appreciate your time today. My pleasure. Thanks, Myra. Thank you.